Welcome to the Savage Voice. This is Amy. This is our last week on healing, and I am super excited to have a conversation today with my very first instructor in burlesque. Jacqueline Box has headlined and been featured in burlesque festivals across the world, including Vienna, Adelaide, Montreal, Minneapolis, and New York City. She has performed twice at the Burlesque Hall of Fame Weekender in Las Vegas, becoming the first performer to ever compete in a wheelchair for a title at the Tournament of Tees. Jacqueline has also taught burlesque workshops and lectured on panels about mindful movement and adaptive performance across the country. Her decades of experience include training in ballet, swing dance, belly dance, aerial arts, clowning, musical theater, and more. In addition, she is also one of the founders of Essential Teas, a virtual or in-person program in which they combine basic burlesque instruction with mind-body awareness techniques and wellness habits. For more information on Jacqueline, you can go to her personal website, Miss Disaburly Teas, M-I-S-S-D-I-S-A-B-U-R-L-Y-T-E-A-S-E.com. And to learn more about the Essential Teas programs, you can visit EssentialTeas.com. That's E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-T-E-A-S-E. Both links will be in our show notes. When I said the intention was healing, what was the first sort of thoughts that popped into your head? So when I think about healing, I think about like everything for me is the combination of like internal and external work. Right. Like I do both at the same time and I can't even think about one without the other. So when I think about healing, I think about the methods that I use to heal both internally and externally, which are, it's a lot about mindfulness, like mindful movement, because I physically need some kinds of movement in order to heal. But then there's also the importance of rest. And that's something that I definitely love to talk about is like the importance of listening to your body and resting when it tells you to, because otherwise healing isn't possible. Okay. So do you mind getting a little bit into why this physical part of things is so important for you? Yeah. So I have, I I call myself a disabled woman proudly. I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome type three, also known as hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but that name can be a little bit misleading for people because it emphasizes the hypermobility and not all of the other things that come with having EDS. So EDS is a genetic disorder of the collagen in your body, which is the connective tissue that holds all kinds of things together, not just your skin or your joints, but also part like organs use collagen to hold things right. together. And, you know, your blood needs collagen in the vessels so that things get held together. It's everywhere. And my body and the bodies of anyone who has EDS, it makes defective collagen by default. That's what the genetic makeup creates. So obviously that manifests as hypermobility in terms of my joints. 
And I get a lot of dislocations or subluxing, which is like a a partial dislocation Uh in a joint. But then I also have a lot of other things that come along with that, like really easy bruising and very poor wound healing. If I get a scar, then it is very, very hard for that scar to ever go away. So it's like things that hurt me in kind of any sense, any kind of like physical trauma just stays. It just likes to like stick in my body and stay there. And I know you've talked before because we we know each other Mm -hmm. from before about finding out that this was what you had and that it completely affected one of the things you loved doing the most um, and that stepping out of it and and then making the decision to step in. So I was hoping we could delve a little bit into that process, how you had to go through a process of healing to, to from losing that to getting back to it yeah. and understanding that it was going to be different. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I hadn't realized until exactly this moment that like we're talking about healing and a major factor of EDS is poor healing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and, like my body doesn't like, doesn't heal the way that other people does. That is the the major sign that led to the diagnosis is Uh that I was hit by a car while walking across the street and it broke. Yeah. It broke one of my legs in three places and the healing process from that was so much longer than it should have been. And that was when the doctors and, and myself started thinking something is, actually like really wrong here. Like my body is not healing. It's not jumping back from this injury the way that other bodies would. And that started the kind of hunt to figure out like, well, what's going on? So after getting hit by the car, that was the first time I ever used a wheelchair because obviously I couldn't walk around when my leg was broken in three places. But prior to that, you know, I've been a dancer my whole life. Dance has always been my passion and I've learned so many different kinds of dance. And I had started dabbling in burlesque. Then the the car hit me and everything was obviously put on pause. Like movement wasn't possible for a very long time. I couldn't get around by myself or anything. That was in college. So I graduated that year still like using crutches and a wheelchair. And I was pretty much, you know, stuck in bed that entire senior year. After, you know, I'd say six months to a year, they, it was still not healing properly. I was still not coming back from it. They were concerned about how much inflammation I still had. But I was insistent that I was not going to, quote unquote, let this defeat me. And so I was insistent that like, no, I'm going to get back to dancing. I'm going to do it. But the pain was like worse and worse and worse. And it just kept getting worse. And I'd end up, you know, just falling down on the street while trying to walk around with friends. Just getting around during the day would leave me in excruciating pain. And it kind of eventually led to us going from doctor to doctor to doctor to finally finding the rheumatologist who is like, I think that what you're describing is EDS. And it was only at that point, if we're talking about healing in terms of, you know, kind of both internal and external, Mm -hmm. it was a big shock because she handed me this sheet of paper that like it said a lot of things, but essentially it said, stop expecting that you're going to get better because you aren't. 
essentially. Oh, um, okay. Because, you know, there's this hope when something is wrong with your body where you're like, I'm just going to get over it and then things will go back to normal. Um, mm-hmm. And the sheet of paper was like, you really have to readjust your definition of normal and think about your life from this point on as working with the body you have now. And that was a huge shock. And it was like, uh, right. you know, gut punch. Definitely there were tears. But then after that, that's when the actual internal healing started because I stopped. I say this many times, so you may have heard me say it before, but like I stopped living for this future moment when things would be perfect and mm-hmm. I could go back to normal. And I started living for the present for like right now. I was like, this is, this is the body I, I have right now and I'm going to do what I can do with it. And that changed everything for me. Suddenly I wasn't like thinking so much about what I lacked and about how in the future things would be better. I was thinking right now, this is who I am. I want to appreciate that and work with it. Was that fast? Was it like, get the piece of paper, cry, go home and go, you know what? <laughs> or what, are we talking about like a really long time? Cause it seems yeah. like you were already thinking about a lot of things. So I don't know like when it would have clicked for you. Yeah. It, it took a while. There were, I'd say there were a couple of months of pretty deep depression. I hid a lot from the world outside. I like stopped trying to go out really. It was this like wide vacillation between I never want to leave my house again. And I had this instinct to like go on these big extravagant vacations and like escape the truth about what was happening in my body. Oh, okay. Yeah. Those are big differences. (laughs) Yeah. It was just like, I'm either going to be a hermit forever or I am going to like run away from home and like live in this weird exotic place. And all the time you're, that's basically your brain going back and forth and your emotions going, how am I going to do this? Yeah. yeah. So it, so it kind of sounds like you came to a conclusion that was like closer to the extravagant. Was that decision slow too? You know, Um, when you first said, let me live in the moment, then you had to decide what that was going to look like. Yeah. What happened was, so I was going back and forth between this and it was, you know, it's a very manic, depressive kind of back and forth cycle. And then I planned a trip to Disney with my family, my my mom and dad and my, my sisters. And I, after some consideration, said, okay, I'm going to use a wheelchair while we are at Disney because there is no way that I can physically manage going through those parks with my family for four days on my legs. Right. And that experience, that trip, that was one of my, you know, like run away from everything trips. Mm -hmm. I was like, I enjoyed using the wheelchair because I was suddenly able to experience things the way I always wanted to. I was able to see the world outside and like be a part of it without the pain, without the physical pain that I had come to associate with being out and doing things. And I mean, it sounds a little silly that I had this realization at Disney World, but like, I just, 
I, I had this moment of just like, why am I avoiding this? Why am I avoiding using a wheelchair when I can be a part of the world the way that I want to be, but not hurt myself constantly? And when I came back from that trip, I got my first daily use wheelchair for myself. Um, wow, that's a big switch over then. Yeah, it was a it was a very important trip for me. Yeah, using it. I was using it constantly while I was on that trip, like every day to get around Uh and it helped me feel so much better. So yeah, I got my first wheelchair when I came back and as a way of kind of owning this and saying like, all right, I'm really going to accept this into my life. I customized it myself. I spray painted it gold so that it would look like a- This doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Yeah. And I covered it in sequins and like rhinestones (laughs) on all the different parts of it. And all of a sudden I like looked at it when I had finished customizing it and spray painting it. And it was like shining in the sun. And I was like, this was the right choice. Did you immediately feel different because you'd made a decision? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I could see myself being happy, being someone that, prioritizes their health and their safety, but also isn't losing what they love about the world, still has, you know, trips to go on and people to see. Last month was renewal. So a lot of people have been going through and and stripping out old things. And you essentially stripped out a good portion of your life and what you thought it was going to be. And I imagine that left a gaping hole for a long time. And this yeah. is obviously not the end of your healing, but it almost sounds like <laughs> it was the beginning of yeah. your your healing from not having the life that you had always imagined to deciding what it was going to be and taking some control over that. Yeah, I think that a big part of that healing like was acceptance, right? There had to be, there had to be that acceptance of like, I'm not going to deny anymore what I am feeling and what I'm experiencing. This is, this is real. This is what is happening. This is who I am now. And I accept it fully into myself. And that was, I mean, I know that's cliche to say that like the first step of healing is acceptance, but it absolutely. No, I think it's true. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people I think don't, that's the part they don't want to do. Yeah. Accepting it means it's real. And making something real is scary, but making it real is the only way you can, you know, heal from it, move forward or leave it behind, whatever it is, you you know, whatever it is you're dealing with. But yeah, if you can't accept it, you can't move anywhere. You just sit in it. There's even a difference between accepting it on a surface level. And then like the way I see it, like really taking it into yourself and like making it a part of you. So tell me a little bit more about that. What do you think the difference is? You can say that, like, I accept that this is happening to me and I'm going to deal with it, but that doesn't mean that you have integrated it into your identity. I think that that was an important switch for me, that there was an aspect where I was breathing a deep sigh and saying, okay, I guess I will no longer do this thing that you're saying I can't do anymore. There is this, like, reluctance to really, to make it a part of who I was, to say, you know, this is a part of me. And I, a lot of people talk about how with disability, (laughs) 
some able-bodied people say, well, wouldn't you rather be able-bodied? Like, if it came down to it, wouldn't you rather not have your disability? And that question is so incredibly wrongheaded, because once you accept that you're disabled, there is no separation between disability and yourself. They're so completely fused that I cannot conceive of who I would be as a person without disability being a part of it. And that's what I mean by that kind of like full acceptance and integration into yourself. It is so integral to your character and to the way that you move about the world and the way that you see it, that there is no separation anymore. Almost every single woman can take a page from that because we are constantly being told that we're not enough. We're not good enough, that what we look like isn't enough, what we're doing isn't enough. And I mean, this is another layer on top of all that bullshit um, for you. But, you know, all of us really being able to completely accept who we are as ourselves makes a huge difference. And we are constantly told we're not okay, that there's something wrong with us. It's a different level, but it ends up, I think, playing out in this way that you're you're constantly not okay with who you are. You're constantly waiting for something to change, to be better, to be different about yourself. Do you find that those other parts of being a woman are still something that you grapple with? Yeah. So I internally make this comparison a lot, not often verbalize it, but I'm also a sexual assault survivor. And That's another thing that has kind of become an integral part of who I am through my process of healing, because it has changed how I approach the world, who I am as a person, how I react to to things that happen to me. But also, it has given me more resources for strength than I ever had before. In a similar way, it's something that I had to accept fully as a real fact something that happened to me and something that could not be excised from me. I couldn't just pretend it had never happened and move forward. I had to accept that it occurred, take it inside, make it a part of me, and then I could start the healing process from it. I think that in the way that I, you know, highlight that difference between like surface acceptance and like full internalization Mm-hmm. Uh, that is absolutely the hardest part of the healing process in my mind. Oh, yeah. And I don't think it's something you complete. I think it's something that you are constantly in the process of reaffirming. It's a lifelong journey. Yeah. yeah. Like I think about that with body acceptance. That's something that you have to recommit to constantly. You don't say like, I take self-love into myself and internalize it. And then that's the end. And you never have to think about it again. Oh, geez. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That'd be super awesome. brings me to like how we we met because we met through burlesque. You were the instructor for a class that I was taking. And I I learned not just about body acceptance, but I had no idea like how subversive burlesque is at all. That to me was probably the coolest part of it. The movement's really awesome and all those other things. I'm like, oh man, they're like sticking it to everybody. I love this part. So 
was, was that part of the reason that you were drawn to it? You've sort of said before that it was part of your healing process and acceptance mm-hmm. process to go into burlesque. So can you talk a little bit about how that, like that journey for you? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I was drawn to burlesque initially and it, it is connected to my being, you know, assault an assault survivor. I was drawn to it because I wanted to take ownership back of my body. Like that right. was like my real intention the first time I started doing burlesque, which was in college before the accident. And I wanted to feel a positive connection with my body again. And so it was, you know, very much a healing thing because that is an important part of the healing process is reconnecting with yourself. And I kind of lost burlesque as a result of all of the injury and pain and concern over my body. And then I came back to it using a wheelchair and in a way like putting the wheelchair with me on a stage was a way of saying who I am intrinsically has not changed because disability has entered my life and become a part of me. There is still a core of me that is continuing through and that core of me really likes rhinestones and really likes dance (laughs) and really Uh likes extravagant makeup. All of those things can still exist. You don't have to stop thinking of those (laughs) in association with me just because now I also use a wheelchair. So like being on stage with it was like, I'm still a dancer. I'm still a performer. I'm still somebody who really likes getting dressed up in ridiculous costumes. All of those things are still true. And I feel like, especially with disability, but this is true of other groups as well, people look at somebody with a disability and they make assumptions that they are definitely not glamorous. (laughs) They are definitely not dancers. Mm -hmm. They are not performers. There are all of these assumptions. And by being myself still with the wheelchair on stage, I communicated to myself as well as everybody else that I still had those parts of my personality intact. They weren't going anywhere and disability could include those. It's time to focus on yourself and commit to your own self-growth. Savage Intentions provides tools, structure, and support rooted in feminine energy and the feminine experience. Step away from the distractions and stresses of every day and hold space for self-improvement and discovery. Find your energy, harness your emotions, and make small changes leading to overall fulfillment. It's time to take action and start your journey surrounded by a community of support. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about Savage Intention subscriptions or visit savagemagicmyshopify.com. That's S-A-V-A-G-E dash M-A-G-I-C-K dot myshopify.com. So the first time you did that, how? Oh, it's terrifying. I was going to, because I mean, if you're a performer, (laughs) you love being on stage, right? But then now this is like a whole different thing, even though it's the same. First of all, how did you decide that's what you were going to do? 
<laughs> you could have done nothing or you could have picked other things. I'm, I'm sure. How did you decide like, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then like really get to that point. Cause that geez, doing burlesque, no matter what, for the first time yeah. is scary. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, and now you're, you're throwing on a whole nother level of holy crap to it. Yeah. So how how did, how did that decision get made? So I knew that I, I I wanted to try to do burlesque again, despite the fact that I was in so much pain when I was moving about on my legs and a burlesque troupe in my area, which was then Tucson, Arizona was doing a mentorship group, which is, you know, kind of similar to what I teach now. And you could join it. And at the end, there'd be a show. And I was like, Oh, that would be so amazing. I've been feeling like before, very disconnected from my body Uh because there's this thing that is continually happening that is creating this wall between me and my body. I want to try to break that down. I did that before with burlesque. It would be really cool to do it again, but can't dance on my legs. I was told not to by a doctor. And I was like, what do I do? What do I do? And one of my close friends who lives in Tucson still, Rambo, she she was like, you should sign up. You're going to find a way to do it. I know it. So I signed up with like no idea how I was going oh, to. Okay. <laughs> I was just like, okay, Rambo, let's do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I signed up, but like I still had no idea what I was going to do. I, I signed up for the class, committed to paying the money while knowing I can't dance on my legs. I have no idea what, what the end product of this is going to be. And, you know, about a couple weeks in, we started doing the act planning. And I was like, Maybe I could do some kind of secretary number where I'm an office chair and I'm like swiveling around with phone cords. I was like thinking about all of these kinds of things, ways to get around it. And Uh my mentor in the group looked at me and said, deep, deep breath. (laughs) Why is the chair not a wheelchair? And my reaction instinctively was, anger I got mad at her I was mad at her for insinuating that I was a person who needed a wheelchair except you were except I was (laughs) yeah (laughs) which hit me later (laughs) Mm -hmm. just in the moment I was like well no like what are you talking about and then later on I was like you know, but I, but I do need a wheelchair. Why aren't I willing to put a wheelchair on stage? And that forced me to look at my internalized ableism, my assumptions that nobody would want to see a wheelchair on a stage. A wheelchair is not a glamorous thing to be on a stage. A burlesque performer cannot be in a wheelchair. Like all of these assumptions that were lying underneath my surface anger, I started confronting them kind of one-on-one with myself. And I ended up kind of after that Disney trip, as I was customizing my, my first personal chair, mm-hmm. hell yeah, this chair could be on a stage. It's gold and covered in rhinestones. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a burlesque wheelchair. The exact same way I felt at Disney where like suddenly I can do the things that I love to do and not hurt. That can be the same on stage. I can do the thing that I love to do, which is burlesque, which is perform, 
but not hurt myself. From there on, it was a matter of figuring out how the hell to move in a wheelchair. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever you're new to using a wheelchair, even people who temporarily use them, there's a a learning period. (laughs) You don't just immediately get into one and I'm like, I know how to move in this. Right. Um, So a lot of it was figuring out who am I with this additional thing? How do I move in it? How do I use my dancer's experience in this totally new context? And then I created my act and it was the dress rehearsal before the show. And everybody else was doing traditional burlesque acts on their Mm -hmm. legs. And they were all running through their acts. And I was just sitting backstage sobbing because I was like, nobody wants to see this. What am I doing? I'm not like these other people who are going to go on stage and dazzle everyone and they'll do high kicks and everybody will watch them strut around the stage. Nobody wants to see this. And I was just sobbing and sobbing. And I think there was a moment at the end, right before I had to do my dress rehearsal where I was like, if they don't like it, if they don't want to see this, I am going to feel better as a result of doing this because I'm going to prove to myself that this can still be a part of my life. So I thought of it less for them, for the audience. Think about what this can do for me internally, what it can mean to me. And that helped me get through it. And after that point, I've thankfully been proven wrong about nobody wanting to see burlesque in a wheelchair. <laughs> no, you're, you're a fantastic performer. I absolutely <laughs> love you. watching you. Interestingly enough, the journey you just took us on is exactly what we talked about <laughs> last week. Oh, yeah? That anger is such a big part of this mm-hmm. and that it's one of the harder, scarier parts of it. But you have to yeah. let yourself be angry yeah. to heal a lot of times. and that healing requires a plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you yeah. you came up with one. I mean, your plan, mm-hmm. you know, we condensed it into getting ready for this burlesque performance, but you had to figure it out. Like you can't, yeah. you can't sit around and go, well, I'm going to feel better, you know, and, and then <laughs> have it magically happen. Like you have to have yeah. some sort of a plan. Yours was specific to you, but everybody has to come up with what, what they need to do change whatever it is to, to heal from whatever it is they need to heal from. And we're all, I think we're all more similar than we think in terms of the way that, that things are processed and what we need to to do to heal. When no one healing is any more important than the other, we're talking about a pretty big one today, but you know, I'm sure there were little, little things Mm -hmm. you had to heal along the way too. Did you go through some smaller versions of of healing while this was happening or even, you know, still today? There are a lot of little things that I've had to accept, you know, that are not for me anymore, I guess. Mm -hmm. And those are realizations that I have had to heal from. One of them was grad school. I was, I got my master's in English literature and I was Mm -hmm. getting my PhD and I left partway through that. And a lot of that had to do with disability and about realizing that academia is not not accessible for disabled people. It's not, um, <laughs> it's, it's not super accessible for women either. Yeah. I, I know a lot of uh, women who are in academia and yes, it is uh, upward battle yeah. pretty much all the time. So like releasing that from my life 
is something that I think I am still in the process of healing from that was concurrent with my disability journey. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You basically just got knocked flat completely. Yeah. Oh just my like goodness. all of these things are taken away. And then I had to say like, okay, who's left and what, what am I going to do? That's amazing though, that you, that you were able to do that. And I'm sure not by yourself. I'm sure you had help. Oh, yeah. Community Lots helps help. a lot. You probably had to do a lot of one day at a time for a while mm-hmm. there. I imagine because otherwise yeah. it's too overwhelming. Yeah, kind of like that thing I was saying about living for the present moment. That perspective really helps. When I say that healing is something that you're constantly doing, every day I try to think, you know, what does my body need? How can I listen to it? And how can I work with it? And I similarly think that about mental health struggles. Mm-hmm. What is my mind? What is my spirit? What does my energy need today? And how can I work with it rather than against it? So can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. The working with rather than against is a mantra for me. It's the thing that I teach whenever I have a mentee that I'm working with in burlesque. And it's changed my life to look at things and say, well, how do I work with this rather than against it? Because I think that if you work against yourself in any way, then you can't produce the best life for yourself because part of your energy is just like force meets force and right nothing comes of it <laughs> and then there are some things that you have to just say nope I'm done mm-hmm. like with yeah. you with grad school yeah you know, I, I can't work with this it's hurting yep. me more than it's helping yeah and at that point I say how can I work with who I am and not against who I am instead of continuing to let grad school be the force that is pushing me down how can I move forward with who I am and heal and become the best me possible and that is to stop fighting against who I am and accept that grad school was not going to be something I could do you know still obviously as I said still in the process of healing from that decision I mean I making decisions like that feels like quitting and quitting feels like failure a little bit. Yeah. It's not, it's funny. The thing that drives me wild about that stuff is not so much the like thought of it's a subtle difference, not the thought of quitting, but the thought of like the quote unquote them winning you know, like, ah, okay. Cause ableism is wrong. I know that deep in my soul, putting up barriers in front of disabled people in order to achieve their dreams is wrong. I want those barriers to go away. That's the proper thing to do. That's the right thing that should happen. But I personally cannot make that happen by continuing well, you, to suffer. Well, you have to, I think everybody has to pick their battles. We talked some also about how being selfish is not always a bad thing oh, <laughs> and that we absolutely. make it seem, <laughs> we make it sound like it's awful, but it is not. And, absolutely. you know, you have to make decisions for yourself about yourself to take care of yourself. And yeah. that's what you did. You can't fix everything. <laughs> You're only one I cannot, person. <laughs> I cannot personally defeat all of the ableism no. in the world. <laughs> absolutely not. No, but you also have your place in that fight 
And in that movement, I mean, you definitely do. That's where you can get what you need out of it and be okay as a human and move that forward, Mm -hmm. which you have to balance out the two. If you burn yourself out, you can't help yourself anymore. Accepting and even loving your limits. That's another thing that I talk a lot about in terms of disability and in terms of life. I think that's very important. Everybody has limits to try to say that you don't is kind of delusional and inevitably you're going to hurt yourself if you act like you have absolutely no limitations. Yes. And I, I feel like, again, going back to feminine energy and females, they are definitely told push, 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 Right. make sure everybody else is okay first. In the studio, we see this. I'm sure you see it with people that you work with that, that they're broken they're broken a lot of times because it was too much and they were asked to do too many things and they've literally not taken care of themselves or thought a bit about what they need. And so long that for a lot of them, I'm sure for you too, this is the first thing they've done Mm -hmm. selfishly for themselves Mm -hmm. and forever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they don't even know how to process that. Yeah. Which is why I think people like you are important as mentors. I feel like we have to constantly remind them that this is okay. Yeah. And that they're allowed. And also that you can do it at your own speed. Like, yes. So important. Like, there's nothing wrong with your speed and absolutely your process because it's going to be different from other people's. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's that's actually good. It'd be weird if we were all exactly the same. It'd be boring. (laughs) Yes. I agree. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing this with me. I knew you were going to be the right person for this one. Oh, <laughs> Just from having talked to you. Thank you.